Gospel of Matthew. Primary passage will be found there. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38. And following. Um, We'll just go ahead and read through these verses. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, going through verse 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you would love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father perfect. I wanted to focus on a few of the verses here. This section first. Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. These are some strong commands. And if we really look at them, consider them the very hard commands. When you consider each one, 
by itself. They're very difficult. And I think the common reaction to some of these words is to minimize, to moderate, to try to soften the blow a little bit, to try to find a way to make it not really sound quite as difficult as it might really be. But this is a direct command. A direct command from the creator of the universe. A direct command from our master. A direct command from the one who saved us with his own blood. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And yet, this is one of those commandments we might most want to water down. Because following it is very, very hard. One might say, well, you know, be careful there. Don't go too crazy. The Bible does say we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, so, you know, we can moderate this a little bit, right? Well, when you take a phrase like that, wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right away you know and understand there's like some symbolism there. We're talking about being wise as serpents. Well, you immediately have to look at that and interpret. Well, what does that mean? Harmless as doves. Well, what does that mean? Here you don't have to interpret a single thing. This is really clear. There is no interpretation needed in this. Jesus gave a command, and then he gave clear examples. Very precise commands. Very precise interpretation. Very precise application for these commands. And the interpretation and the application are coming from the same mouth. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our interpretation. It's not our application. It's not a commentator's interpretation or a commentator's application. He gives us his interpretation and application to use. We know what he means. And additionally, when we consider verses like the one I just mentioned, like wise as serpents and harmless as doves, we might think, oh, we can moderate this a little bit with a passage like that. Well, fine. But read that passage because the Lord Jesus Christ said those words too. And he's going to be in agreement with himself, right? And if you look at that passage, which is actually found in Matthew chapter 10, he's actually warning of really difficult times to come. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep unto wolves. And you need to be wise as serpents, as harmless as those, because you will be persecuted. You will be jailed. You will be beaten. You will be, ab- will be abused. You will be murdered for his name's sake. And in that passage, he's saying, expect it. Expect these things. Being wise needs to be understood within the context of the assumption that persecution and abuse and mistreatment and even murder are the expected normal of what's to come for us. It's the expected scope of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think we get away from this a little bit because of where we live and the time we live and and the luxury we live in and, and the peace and calm we have. We really can't stand or sit here this morning and say we are experiencing persecution. We have it very good. Yeah, there's people out there, there's folks out there who would laugh and ridicule and whatever. We're not dealing with anything. 
We just sang about the calm, you know, and the storm. We're in the calm here. If you think you want to see the storm, maybe talk to some folks in North Korea or something. We haven't seen the half of it. So what does this commandment about loving your enemy mean? And these other commandments that go right along with it. Well, let's break it down. Let's break it down. It's a very simple commandment. Love your enemies. Two very simple words that make up this sentence, other than the word your. It's love and enemies. Let's talk about love and enemies. First, love. What is love? In this case, it's that famous word, agapeo, or we say agape. Thayer's lexicon of Greek says it this way, agapeo means to love, to be full of goodwill, and to exhibit the same. To have preference for, to wish well to, to regard the welfare of. It is often used in the epistle, first epistle of John for the love of Christians towards one another, of the benevolence which God, in providing salvation for men, has exhibited by sending His Son to them and giving Him up to death. And in a particular tense and, 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 and placement in these verses, Thayer's lexicon states that the, the phrase in here, to have preference for, to wish well to, to regard the welfare of, is what this word means for your enemies. It's a hard teaching, and it gets harder. <laughs> because Jesus, like I said, didn't leave it up to our interpretation to decide how much or to what quality we should be loving our neighbors. He gave us clear examples. The first example, of course, is his, himself. Look at the life of Christ. He came to a world that rejected him. He did healings, teachings of love and equity and justice and righteousness and care for each other. He fed and provided for many. He visited the sick and needy in their distress. He cast out demons for people. He pronounced forgiveness for people. He changed lives for the better. All for people that he knew would eventually reject him, would beat him, would verbally abuse him. And then they would torturously kill him in the worst possible way that man has ever devised for someone to die. And yet he came and he did those things for us. He preferred our good over his own. He turned his own cheek to the blows that he took just before going to the cross. He prayed for those from the cross who were abusing him, who were ridiculing him, and said, Father, forgive them as he was dying. He literally gave up his tunic and cloak. We even read it how they took his his clothing, and they, they divided it among them, and then his overcoat that was in one piece, they cast lots for it to see who would get it. He broke bread with the one who would betray him. 
and the one who would disown him, the people who would ask. He allowed a thief to hold the money bag, knowing that he was stealing for his own pocket. He gave himself as the ultimate example and leader of what it means to love your enemies. He didn't just give us commands and tell us to go do them. He gave us commands and showed us how to do them. But he also gave us the explicit instructions, like we read. He said explicitly, don't resist an evil one who comes against you. He said explicitly, if someone hits you on the face, turn your other cheek and let him have the other side too. He said explicitly, if someone sues you for your clothing... Give them more than they require. He said, if you're explicitly, if you're required to serve somebody with manual labor, give them double the work. He said, explicitly, if someone comes begging for money from you, give it to them. Don't refuse. He said, if someone asks to borrow money from you, don't refuse them. These are explicit commands. How do we get around teachings like this? How do we not live this? How do we not obey this? We might. But we'd be wrong in our understanding. We might. But we would not be like Christ in doing so. We might. But we would be failing to obey His commands in doing so. But how does our human nature react to these kinds of commands? against an evil one who comes up against us, against somebody who slaps us in the face, against someone who says that we should give them what we have worked hard to obtain, against someone who's forcing us to do some work that we don't want to do, against someone who's asking us for our money, or food, or whatever they may be asking and begging us for, against or, or to someone who is asking to borrow what we've accumulated. What is our natural re- human reactions to these things? It's usually not the positive. Our souls resist these things. Our human nature cries out for us to stand up for our rights, our dignity, our possessions. Our human nature has us abhor the beggar. The opposite of what Jesus is calling us to. Our human nature has us to resist sharing what we've worked so hard to accumulate. But Jesus flips human nature on its head. And not only did he do that, but then he went and demonstrated it with his own life. To say, I'm not just giving you a command, I'm showing you how to do it. There's two words in this command of interest, as I said, love and enemies. What's our enemy? What's an enemy? It could be a broad category. But quite simply, your enemy is someone who is hostile to you, someone who is uh, opposition to you, someone who hates you. That's how Thayer's Lexicon defines the word enemy as it's used in the scripture. Someone who's hostile to you, someone who hates you, someone who comes in opposition to you. 
that's your enemy. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because <clears throat> sometimes we redefine what our enemies are. And you know, when Jesus says love your enemies, there's a reason he gave this command. It's because he had to. It's not our natural human reaction to see an enemy and respond in love. Jesus didn't have to give us a command and say, make sure you try to at least three square meals a day. He didn't have to give you a command to say, try to get enough sleep. He didn't have to give you a command to say, enjoy times with your friends. These are all things we like to do. He had to give us commands about the things that are difficult for us to do or difficult to remember to do. So that when we read them, we're reminded of them. We need to do them. We need to remember these things. So who is our enemy? First of all, it's important to have the right perspective of this. It's someone who is hostile toward you. Someone who is in opposition toward you. Someone who has hate for you. You see the direction of this? It's from the enemy towards you. So let's avoid looking out at society and people around us and labeling enemy, enemy, enemy. And then reacting to them as your enemies. It can be very easy to segregate people in your mind based on their demographics. Based on who they are in relation to you. And then consider some of them as enemies. And then presume that they are going to be hostile towards you. It can be, it's easy to prejudge people based on their demographics. But when you prejudge someone, that's where we get the word prejudice from. Prejudge. That's where the word comes from. We can be prejudiced towards someone and assume that they are our enemy based on wealth, based on politics, based on race, based on language, based on an accent, based on their appearance, based on the clothing that they choose to wear, based on the religion, based on their gender, based on their social status or their career status, their age, their education, their sexuality, their nationality, their geography, their family relations, their friend circles, who they hang out with, and many, many other things. We shouldn't be the ones determining and labeling others as our enemies. Unless someone particularly shows hostility towards you, why label them as an enemy? They haven't shown themselves to be an enemy yet. Don't assume. Don't be prejudiced. Because then you're their enemy. We're not called to be the enemies of these people. We're called to love them, to share the gospel. How how can you go and, and share the gospel when you've labeled someone as your enemy and you've been to treat them in, in, in a negative fashion? Immediately you've built a wall. Let them build the wall. And allow yourself to be the, the, the instrument of God through love to break down that wall. 
It also kind of leans back to another thing that we're not going to read this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we talk about who is our neighbor. And that definitely is a lesson that is in there as well. But let the, uh, the status of enemy, the hostility, the opposition, the hatefulness, be established by the enemy and not by us. And when someone is directly hostile towards you, towards us, what does Jesus say? It's time for love. Show them the love of Christ in response. You might say, is there nothing oppositional we can do in the face of direct hostility against us? Sure. Go back to that passage that we like to bring up about being wise as serpents in these situations and see what Jesus said there. He said, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You want to do something? The persecution is getting hot. You can flee. You can flee. He doesn't say stand and resist or run away. What he says is if you're going to stand there, you've got to turn the other cheek and let them have at it again. We don't see a call to organize a protest or gather all the Christians and create a resistance against this persecution we're, we're undergoing and scream and shout about our rights or demand to be treated more nicely by people who have no spiritual understanding of what we're talking about. It is natural for them to react this way. We're telling them things they don't want to hear. We're living a way that shines a light on problems, and they don't like it. For them to react negatively toward us is to be expected. You might say, well, wait a minute, what about Paul? You know, he appealed to Caesar, right? Yep, he did. Paul never resisted abuse, though, did he? Actually, if you look at Acts 16, when you see Paul before the magistrate, the Roman magistrate in Macedonia, Paul waited to inform the magistrates in Macedonia of his Roman citizenship and his rights until after they had beaten him and thrown him into prison. You see, some some men... Today we might consider them human traffickers. They had a young girl that they were making money off of because she was possessed and she was telling fortunes. So they were taking her from place to place and making money off of her. And she was having a horrible, horrible life. And Paul came in and he cast out the demon. Well, now these men had no income source. They had lost a lot of money. So they grab Paul, they take him to the Roman magistrate. The Roman magistrate throws him in prison and beats him with rods. Paul doesn't say a word. It's expected. He knew it was expected. It was after he they released him and tried to expel him from the territory that Paul said, wait a minute. You just beaten in prison a Roman citizen without due process. 
And now you're telling me to get out of this country? Why did he say that? He was still there on a mission. He had come to visit a woman named Lydia and the people in that district to encourage them with the word of God. He wasn't done. He had more to do there. So he told the gentleman, you know, you guys could be in a heap of trouble. And then he went his way back to the home of Lydia and was able to encourage the saints and do what he was there to do before he would move on to the next city. Later, he did use his citizenship. Again, he he appealed to Caesar when the Jews brought him up on charges. And what's interesting about this is that he used this appeal to Caesar so that he could be preaching to higher levels of government. And even as as, as it says in, in the book of Acts, It actually extended his imprisonment and discomfort to do so. He was innocent. He had done nothing against Roman law. And he knew it. Remember, Paul was a smart guy. Very high intellect, very good education. And he was a Roman citizen. And he extended his imprisonment and discomfort. But he was called by God to give witness in Rome. And when you, when you see him speaking before King Agrippa and the governor, his name was uh, Festus, one after Fe- I thought it was Fe- no, it was Festus, the one after Felix, when he gave his, his defense to these, to these people from Rome, he wasn't decrying the social injustice of his imprisonment. What he was decrying, what he was explaining to them was, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. King Agrippa even said, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. Perhaps he was being joking, perhaps, I don't know. It's just what it says. Paul was sharing the gospel throughout the entire event. You don't see him calling for his fellow brothers in the faith to march on Rome or write letters. He calls for them to assist him in his practical things during this time. Send my scroll, send a coat, send this person... Carry this letter to here so I can encourage the saints. Carry this letter there so they can teach them while I'm still in prison. He calls them to assist in practical things. He calls them to trust God in times of peril. He calls them to be ready for similar treatment themselves. If you read his prison epistles. Some have said that he appealed to Caesar because the Jews were going to lynch him if he didn't. He actually throws that out right in the beginning. He tells Agrippa and Festus in Acts 25, I do not seek to escape death. That is not his reason. He got other reasons. And it was to present a case of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ before many. Festus thought that Paul was out of his mind. But clearly Paul had a method to his madness. As a result of Paul's obedience to the call of Christ, he was able to proclaim the gospel to many in Rome's government through his chains. His enemies threw him in chains. And he said, so be it. If this is where the Lord has me, how can I work for the Lord in chains? And in obedience, 
he followed his Lord. We have another person in more recent history that I have always enjoyed uh, reading about and learning more of, and a man named Watchman Nee in China. Very similar experience. He was imprisoned for his faith. One of the interesting things about his imprisonment, while he was in jail, much like Paul, there was always a communist guard who had to be there in his cell at all hours, sometimes two. And they could not shut him up. (laughs) And he shared the gospel with guards in prison. And he shared the gospel with other prisoners in prison. People that he could not have shared the gospel with otherwise. And later in, in his life, while he was in prison, there was a movement from the West that people learned about the plight of Watchman Nee. There was a movement from the West. A lot of political pressure put on the Chinese government to release Watchman Nee from prison. Many letters were sent from the West. And Watchman Nee didn't even know about it at first. But eventually word got to him that there was this movement and it might turn out to be his release. And he said a very humble letter and said, Stop. This is where God has put me. I have been able to share the gospel with multiple people that I could have never shared the gospel with. People in, in, in the Communist Party. People that are guards and policemen. Don't change what God is doing here. God is working miracles behind bars. And he gave his life for his Lord. Paul the Apostle, he faces enemies with patience. He faces enemies with endurance. He faces enemies with self-sacrifice. At the end of the day, Paul was martyred. He gave his life. Paul faced his enemies with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul faced his enemies with love. Paul once said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What he saw in Christ, he just wanted to live out himself. He saw Christ give his life for us in love. People who hated him, people hostile to him, enemies of Christ. And Christ gave his life for us. When Paul had enemies, They were the people he was there to share the gospel with. So Paul did the same. We have a great example in Paul. In Christ and Paul both, we see examples of humble, self-sacrificial love. Love for the church, love for the world, love for enemies. Jesus' command goes beyond our interactions, though. Jesus' command, as he gives it here, goes beyond how we act toward our enemies. There's this little phrase at the end. Love your enemies, but more than that, pray for those who persecute you. Some of your translations might say, pray for those who despitefully use you. We're called to pray for them. So it's not just merely outward actions. It's a heart of love. It goes back to what Thayer's lexicon says about 
having preference for, desiring their best. He calls us to pray for those who persecute us. And if I can borrow a line from Nathan's upcoming musical, it's not like the Jewish residents of Anatevka praying for the Russian Tsar, who was their enemy, saying, May God and bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. That's not how we're called to pray for our enemies. No. It's praying for their souls. It's praying for their well-being. It's praying for their best. It's praying for their salvation. Ultimately praying that our enemies might become our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. Even if they abuse us, even if they are hostile towards us, even if they mistreat us, that we might someday be able to embrace them in the unity of the Holy Spirit and the common salvation that they may one day attain. That we could turn and embrace them and tell them we love them. When Jesus gives us this command, the following verses after this, he kind of explains a little bit. He says, that you might be sons of the Father. Why does he say this? Because it's a demonstration. The sons are supposed to be like the Father. It's a natural order of things. And if we're going to be like the Father, how did the Father love? By sending His Son. This is a way we can demonstrate. We can live out that we are sons of God. Sons of the Father through Jesus Christ. That we have that adoption into sonship. Because it reflects how God, our Father, sees and deals with those who are at enmity with Him. God continues to show love to all even now, and so should we. This is a very hard command to really live. Because when people are hostile to us, we don't want to respond with love. It gets our negative reactions, it gets our human nature to respond with hate in response. I'll read a quote. Because when we don't respond as Christ would respond, our enemies are watching us. And you know, they hold us to a higher standard. Have you ever been challenged by someone who's an unbeliever? They hold us to a higher standard because of our faith. A higher standard that they hold for themselves. If they see you acting in a way that doesn't fit their standard for you, they'll be sure to let you know about it even if they don't live by the same standard. They're watching. And when we fail to live like Christ, they notice it. And it hurts our witness for the gospel. Gandhi, the great reformer from India and South Africa, 
He spent a lot of time in many parts of the world. He spent time in, in London, in college there, where he was introduced to the Bible. And he read it. But he had this to say. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. How depressing. This is a man who was seeking for so many years, studying religions, studying Christianity, studying Islam, studying Hinduism, studying Judaism. He read the Bible. He read the Quran. He read the, the, the Hindu writings. And when he came across the Christians, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Don't let that be said of us. man had a worldwide impact. People today still listen to what he said. Can you imagine the impact if this man had been a believer in Jesus Christ? If he had taken the, the fervor that he had, but it was with the gospel... There was failure on the part of Christians in his life. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms to love our enemies and how to love our enemies. How will we respond? Will we seek exceptions and self-justification? Or will we seek examples from his own demonstration of love to us? Will we seek our own desires? Or will we seek to show His love? Will we be disciples of Jesus Christ in this commandment? Or will we, in essence, be our own masters? Will we obey the command of Christ? Jesus said, Love your enemies. Close in prayer. Our Father, this teaching is not easy. It goes against our heart's desire at times when people are hostile to us, when people ridicule, or hate, or abuse. While we've had it quite easy here, we're also untested. Father, we would ask that you would strengthen us with your grace. And when we are opposed, when we are hated for your name, when we have hostility coming towards us, that we would respond with the commands of Jesus, that we would turn our cheek that we would give when people ask of us. 
that we would be an example and a witness for Jesus Christ that is fitting, that truly reflects how the Lord Jesus Christ lived and how He loves us today, that truly reflects the heart and love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for this lost world, that we might be able to still share the gospel after our reaction to such hostilities. That we might not lose our witness. Father, help us to be good disciples. Help us to remember these words from your Son, our Savior. Help, help us to have these words on our hearts as we go through each day and we're distracted by the world. Help us help these words of the Lord to come back to us in that moment of testing, in that moment of turmoil, when someone is accosting us for whatever reason, but especially when it comes because of the name of Lord Jesus Christ that we hold to, that we trust in, that we have our faith in and our hope in. Now, Father, we thank you that we can spend some time together now in fellowship downstairs. We ask that you have received honor and glory from the things that are said there. We thank you for the food that you have provided. We ask your blessing on it. We ask your blessing on the time we have there as well. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.